CDs were a little bit unstable to play because of the shaking while running. And you know, how would it be if be if a hematologist got a blood clot? It looks so bad. Ah, you shouldn't be doing that. You just need to enjoy the nature. That said, a lot of people are, are trying to escape something when they're, you know, and usually their normal lives when they're he heading to the wilderness. we got to allow space for that. You and I are like a couple of regular fellows. I mean, you do what you do. I do what I got to do. Welcome to the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast with me, your host, Daryl Macias. Here, we get to talk to the movers and the shakers of wilderness medicine and adventurers alike, giving you insight into the latest science and techniques related to wilderness medicine. Hey folks, it's June, 2022. We got two great articles for you that are really relevant. First, we're going to talk to Dr. Tom Delory about travel associated venous thrombolism. And hey, what a great article. Why not? Travel is, or maybe isn't, becoming easier this summer. Well, now, let me see. You know, I don't have any idea what that means. And how could informatics and wilderness medicine tie into each other? Well, to decipher the future, Dr. Chris Davis will discuss telemedicine in the wild, drones, and wearable technology as we discuss the article, The Intersection of Telemedicine and Wilderness Care, Past, Present, and Future. So both of these articles are in the June edition of the journal. So listen in and read on. And last note, the WMS is doing a resurfacing or a rebranding on the website and the WMS logo. So please check it out on the website. Now, this podcast is also going to have a new name, quite simply, the Wilderness Medicine Podcast come this September. We'll continue with our content and we'll have some of our local talent on to review other relevant wilderness and austere medicine write-ups as well. So let's get on with it. Let's talk blood clots. Let's talk about the use of aspirin or low molecular weight heparin, anoxaparin, or rivaroxaban, or nice, tight socks, the knee-high variety. And let us ask, do any of these really help on that long airplane ride? Let's go. Passengers gone wild at 40,000 feet, fights over face coverings, leading to major crackdowns. Now, you may be getting ready to take a trip as COVID precautions lift, but the I-Team has learned a growing number of travelers refuse to get with a pandemic program. The COVID pandemic travel restrictions for airline travel have relaxed, at least domestically, and that's good news for many of us who travel and do wilderness medicine activities internationally. So... No worries. Today, we're not going to discuss COVID. We're not going to discuss the things that go on your face, whether you want it or not. No, we're going to discuss what might need to go around your legs. That is the topic for our June article, a review on travel-associated venous thromboembolism. And with us to discuss the June paper is Dr. Thomas DeLore, who some of you might know has done many excellent wilderness medical society conference talks on hematology related things in the wilderness. So Tom, it's great to have you here. Welcome from Oregon. That's where you're based. That's right. Great. It's great to be here. It's another lovely rainy day in Oregon, and I'm very pleased to be here to talk about our paper. Excellent. You know, this paper is one of those papers that 
as travelers, we always go, hmm, should I do this? Should I do that? And looking at this paper, it looks like you went pretty far back. You looked at quite a lot of studies published in English, primarily starting from 1946. Then you go on to 2007. One of the things I wasn't sure is, did you make a jump? Did you emphasize the papers that were made from 2007 beyond? Um, I could parse this question into two parts if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, no, that's a great question. So uh, what we did is that uh, really in the early 200s, there was uh, really a, a several excellent systemic, systematic reviews uh, published that summarized the prior literature. So what we mainly focused on was what those systematic reviews found and then articles published since then. And the back to 46 was to double check any other literature that had been missed. So it was sort of a two-pronged, several pronged approach. Uh, some excellent systematic reviews, making sure nothing was missed in those, and then updating what had been published since those reviews until we uh, wrote our paper. So with all of those, how many of those studies actually address travel associated, I'll call it VTE, Venus, uh, thromboembolism, we'll probably refer to that or call it venous thromboembolism, which is a mouthful for you listeners. And of those that did address travel-associated VTE, of those, how did you decide which studies you would use as a basis of determining the risk that you put in your paper? And how many of those articles were actually chosen out of the multitude of papers? That is great. So what we ended up with was uh, actually four systematic reviews, and then after that, four non-randomized studies. And so uh, we were able to, to pretty hone it down uh, based on our criteria. And then the uh, systematic reviews, in, uh, one of them, the most uh, thorough, included 55 studies. So probably roughly, uh, if you count the systematic reviews, 60 studies. One thing that's been very difficult, and I think plagues this literature a little bit, is not that many were like, the highest of quality. Many of these were case controls, observational studies. Uh, there's, uh, I, especially for just uh, uh, very few prospective studies done. So I think that's one point we made is although there's quote a lot of data there, it's really not the highest quality. And so that's why I think our confidence intervals for the odds ratios were pretty high. And some of our conclusions are a little bit waffly. Would you mind discussing what an odds ratio is for those, you know, just briefly, if you don't mind, uh, for those who might not understand what an odds ratio is? That's sure. So, so that's a good question. So the odd ratio is usually the way I think about it is a measure of an association like between a, uh, a exposure and an outcome. And it's the odds that it will occur given a particular exposure. So one of our studies said there is an odds ratio of four with airplane travel. So the idea would be that me just sitting at home in Portland and then Wednesday when I fly to, you know, when I go on my, uh, go on a trip, I'll have four times more likely risk of getting a thrombosis. So mainly these are used in, in case control studies. So that's, that was sort of the concept behind that. For you that are listening, I want you to also be readers of this article. There's a table, table one, and it talks about some of the interventions that were done with some of these papers. And it talks about the endpoints, the results, and the study limitations. The first one was by BEAM. And some of us might worry about, well, a PE. And certainly here in Albuquerque, 
our university is close to an airport and we've had people come in from, you know, the airport because of emergency landings, because of chest pain or whatever. We've had actually a few PEs. And, you know, what's interesting is to see some of these studies that you've well outlined and delineated in the table to discuss some of the strengths, some of the weaknesses. This first paper by Beam uh, discussed the risk of VTE being substantially increased in some sort of a medical condition. It might be whole body immobility, orthopedic immobility, or travel greater than eight hours causing immobility. I thought that was, you know, really cool. I don't have any question pertaining to that, but I want the readers to look at some of the limitations. And you're absolutely right, Tom. Uh, some of these studies are actually somewhat difficult to give some sort of a derivation with respect to recommendations, but I think it was pretty bold of you and the other authors to all put this together and give us an idea of things such as the odds ratio when you do such and such sure. intervention. Yeah, and I have to give a big shout out to both uh, Tova Cole and Andrew Hamilton. We have a clinical integration evidence-based practice center here. And you know that was sort of their mandate and really did a great job of going through this morass of literature and help us understand it. So uh, shout out, you know, I think that was a big help. And one of our ideas when we initially got this study was to get them involved, getting their expertise as informaticians, so to speak, in going through this morass of data. Yeah, and that actually speaks to the importance of having a good crew, a good team, because as a primary, a PI, you know, you can't certainly do all this stuff. Somebody has to derive the information. Somebody has to decide whether this paper cuts the mustard as far as, you know, being good methodology or, or whatnot. And you all definitely poured through quite a lot of literature to derive the best literature. And I'm sure there aren't too many people signing up for, yes, I want a VTE. Yes, I want a PE. So, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you know, kudos to that. So, That's right. <laughs> but speaking to that, and this will be important for a lot of our listeners. There's a main question here. I do a lot of travel. I'm sure you do a lot of travel. And later this year, around October, I'm going to be driving from Cody, Wyoming to Denver International. It's about 500 miles, eight hour drive in my small Subaru. I actually don't have a Subaru, but let's just pretend. Okay. Well, and everybody in Portland, Oregon has a Subaru. So I'll make it. Uh... Exactly. Here in New Mexico, we have big trucks. That's great. That's awesome. Well, anyways, my small Subaru for you organites over there. And I have a, one day to get to the airport. I'm going to take a flight to Zurich this fall to get to the International Commission for Alpine Rescue Meeting, which is nearby in Davos, Switzerland. So the flight is going to be about 12, 13 hours total. There's going to be just an hour layover in Chicago. And I'm a healthy mid-age fellow. I don't have any medical issues. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I certainly uh, don't take uh, any of the uh, legal green substances, but uh, that's for those of us listening to decide whether or not that's a medical issue. But my friend, he's going to be meeting me at the Denver airport. Well, what about my friend? Well, he's a bit on the heavy side. You know, his BMI has increased. He smokes a pack a day. He's a great guy. He likes to drink. He knows his whiskeys. He knows his wine, but he really doesn't overdrink. I wouldn't call him an alcoholic. He's never had any blood clots, but he's on the sedentary side. He's a programmer. He's on the computer all the time, but he walks around just fine. He does have hypertension. He's being treated for that. And I'm hoping to help him change his lifestyle habits out in Switzerland. And 
stop, stop packing away those hamburgers. And in Switzerland, it's hard to get hamburgers anyways, but you can. I even want him to stop eating those impossible burgers, whatever those are. And I personally have been training to climb the Eiger. It's a pretty stout climb for the trip ahead. And I hope to do some paragliding. So I'm going to be active out there during this conference. He, however, he wants to go to Switzerland. He wants to see some friends. He's never been out to Switzerland. He wants to drink some of that fine, rare Swiss wine that you can only find in Switzerland. And he's a generous bloke. And he even says, hey, you know what? Tell you what, I'm feeling so generous. I want to pay the difference for both of us to fly business class. And I'm going, wow, okay, that's uh, very nice. Huh? Very nice. Instead of getting economy class syndrome, that'd be great. Well, yeah, it's a pretty big flight. And I sure do not want to get any of those venous clots, those thromboemboli. And I don't want my friend to get a pulmonary embolus either. And I decided, hey, I'm the responsible doctor. We're now taking aspirin. I brought some aspirin for our trip. And his physician actually prescribed subcutaneous low molecular weight heparin just in case he gets blood clots, conscientious. But based on what you have all unearthed regarding the evidence, what are our chances of getting a venous blood clot in the legs? And what would be the best way to minimize our chances of getting venous thromboembolism or a pee? And that's a mouthful, Tom. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, I think all those are great questions. That certainly comes up in my practice several times a day, as well as other people. Well, I think, you know, it, it's very clear air travel is a risk factor, and it does seem to start at about four hours. So certainly a trip from Chicago to uh, Zurich would, would fall in there. Uh, interesting, you mentioned the uh, car trip of eight hours. There's probably a slight risk of that. That's been less studied uh, less well-documented, and I think that's a very heterogeneous population. I love Diet Coke, so when I drive long distances, I stop very frequently. You know, other people just drive straight through. Maybe their risk would be higher, but certainly with the air travel, there is a risk factor. Best data is for compression stockings, knee-high, 15 to 30 millimeters of mercury, and there's a... It, it, there's the strongest studies there and a beautiful Cochrane review shows there's probably maybe a risk reduction of up to 90%. So those work very good. And so, you know, the guidelines are a little bit all over the map. Certainly people who worry about getting blood clots like me, because, you know, how would it be if, be if a hematologist got a blood clot, it looks so bad, um, <laughs> would wear compression stockings. But certainly I think most people agree your friend who is at risk uh, should be wearing compression stockings. And you know these can be medical grade, you can get them at the pharmacy. I, I actually personally wear ones I buy from uh, the place I buy my running shoes, so because they look nice. So, so I think that that's what most people would agree upon. The issue of pharmacologic prophylaxis is pretty controversial. There's only a few studies. These are methodologically weak. But, you know, it is suggested from the guidelines and personal experience, if you feel somebody's at very high risk, and again, a flight time over 10 hours does seem to be high risk. Certainly, if your friend had a history of venous thrombosis, uh, let's say he had factor V Leiden, most people would probably recommend prophylaxis. For him, if he said, boy, I'm really, really scared of this because my brother Joe died of a PE, we may consider that. The only data such as it is, is on low molecular weight heparin, 40 milligram of anoxaparin, you know, before the flight. 
But most of us actually now use River Roxavan, 10 milligrams PO. Um, this is, of course, evidence-based medicine-free zone. But the idea is we know it's just as effective in orthopedic surgery. It's a heck of a lot easier, you know, for patients getting syringes to the airport. They, you know, I would have to write letters for them and stuff. And I think that would be it. So I think for everybody, it's reasonable to consider compression socks. I, I believe the other benefit of these is that your legs just simply feel better uh, after a very long flight with less edema. Certainly those at risk benefit from compression socks. Um, I think every hematologist draws the line differently, but for patients of mine at very high risk, previous clots, uh, carrying a thrombophilia, and a flight maybe over 10 hours, would do something pharmacologic. But that's also, as we point out, where there's really gaps, and I think it would be possible to develop some better, uh, stronger, higher-grade data in those areas. It sounds like the compression stockings, that has the best evidence. It's going to reduce yes. the risk by 90%. Now, these stockings are medical-grade, and I'm not aware of this because, honestly, I confess I haven't worn any compression stockings. I usually just wear my regular high socks that I use for skiing. But are the airport stockings, if you decide, oh, shoot, I forgot my compression stockings, are those any good? As far as you know, you may or may not know, but it sounds like they, you know. they, they should be good. Uh, if, they're, if they say medical grade or they say uh, that actually happened to me once. It was quite embarrassing. I was coming back from Melbourne, Australia, and I, I accidentally packed my my uh, compression stocks. Yeah. And most of them, they say uh, there's compression of 10 to 15 millimeters of mercury. That hopefully should be good enough. But 15 to 30 is really what that's the key number. It has to be some compression there. Okay, that sounds great. And then instead of taking subcutaneous enoxaparin, rivaroxaban. So yes. when should when would you recommend we start somebody on rivaroxaban and for how long after the travel? Oh, that's great. So I, I treat it just like uh, other risk factors. So what I would do is that, uh, again, everybody has their arbitrary criteria. Mine are previous thrombosis some sort of st or some sort of strong thrombophilia, and usually flights over 10 hours or so. Previous thrombosis or some sort of strong thrombophilia, and usually flights over 10 hours or so. Because there does seem to be an inflection point there in risk. And I simply have them take uh, one pill. Uh, let's say they're going on a trip. I have them take one pill in Denver on the way out. And then when they come back, one pill on the way back. Because the half-life, the, the effective duration is about 24 hours and should cover that at-risk period. Because, you know, once they, you land, hopefully you're going to be out, moving, doing things, and, and the risk will be over. You know, I found very interesting in the compilation of studies was this one study where some people whose feet didn't touch the floor were also tested and they had kind of a slightly higher risk. And is that the only paper that exists that studies either small people, small children, whatever? That, that was interesting. It is. There are a couple of cute studies like that. So that's one. And there was a paper that showed people sat in window seats at higher risk than aisle seats because, you know, I, you never know, get up, go to the bathroom, have to crawl over a few people. So, uh, yeah. And, and the paper about the feet not touching the floor worried me since I'm actually a rather short person. So uh, another reason why I wear stockings. <laughs> right. Or, you know, put your legs on a backpack or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Although I would point out that globally taller people have a higher risk of thrombosis than shorter people. So, <laughs> Oh my gosh. I agree. Especially in economy class where the yes. seats are getting closer and you get these poor <laughs> six to four people that are all. Yeah. So with that, and now I digress just a little bit, 
would you recommend that people get up every so often? How often to do calf exercises? Is that really something that helps as far as you know? Oh, you know, it's one of those things. The only studies on those are more, you know, observational studies like where, oh yeah, if you, you know, do calf exercises, your blood moves around more, but there's actually no strict studies on that. But again, I may, and again, common sense gets us in trouble sometimes in medicine, but it does seem like it's a very low risk intervention to get up, stretch, go to the bathroom, walk around uh, at least every couple of hours. Again, you know, and sometimes that can be impractical. You know, if I'm, I'm going to London uh, this summer and, you know, I'm, I may be napping for four hours on the plane. So that's where I think the stockings come in. But I think it's, it's prudent if you're awake to try to get up every couple of hours and move around a little bit or, you know, just simply stand in your seat and stretch or step in the aisle and stretch. And that's why I usually always get aisle seats. Do you think there's any advantage? Should I be paying more money to get an economy plus size where I have more legroom, or should we even go for this business class? Is that going to reduce our chances of VTE, do you think? The studies of that haven't been that strong. And <clears throat> I think part of the trade-off is you may actually be more immobile there because you're in a nice comfy seat. Mm -hmm. I, you know, you stretch back, you know, the you know, the, the flight attendants come with the ice cream cart and you're just sitting there having a great time. So, uh, so I think there's both plus and minuses to that. Uh, probably our best theory of why people get clots on the plane is venous stasis, venous immobility. <clears throat> but the studies have been honestly weak on that point and haven't been all that suggestive. It's a heck of a lot of extra money. Uh, Stockings may be a better investment. Yeah, well, you know, if my friend's paying, I'm all for it. So <laughs> go for it. I like that fat ice cream. What about uh, aspirin? That's something that, you know, people ask me a lot about. Is that really worth it? It didn't seem like there was a lot of compelling evidence for aspirin prophylactically. Right. And that turns out, that's interesting. There's one uh, small, again, uh, somewhat weak study to show that aspirin wasn't that effective. So we actually tend not to recommend it. Uh, there may be a very modest effect, but, you know, aspirin is a drug. It does cause bleeding and certainly, uh, I think most of us would say that in a lot of the data we have, the direct oral anticoagulants are more effective and actually seem to have the same risk of bleeding. So, so I go at stockings. If I want to up the ante, then I go ahead and uh, give rivaroxaban. Hmm. You know, it was interesting. It's not really a question. It's more of a, a comment or observation. Probably about 10 years ago, we were teaching a, a mountain medicine CME course up at Rainier. And one of my instructors, who's, you know, a very athletic guy, you know, young guy, makes the trip up from Albuquerque to Seattle to join us for the Mount Rainier trip. And he wanted to go to the Cascades and he started getting leg pain in his left leg. I think it was. And he ends up with a DVT. And I was surprised because he didn't have any types of risk factors, you know, very healthy guy. They tested him for factor five light and that was negative. And I guess they chalked it up to dehydration. And I've kind of heard, at least in the high altitude literature, that maybe dehydration could be a factor, but it didn't seem to me that that was a super, there was super strong evidence to support that that would be a significant risk factor. Have you encountered that? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you have to be really dehydrated to get uh, blood clots, because that's literally almost sludging of the blood, and probably to an extent that you know, you have to be really sick or have hyperosmotic coma or something to achieve. So, you know, we say hydrate, but I think that's more just so you go to the bathroom more to move around. So a patient like that, I'd be pretty concerned. 
there, despite the negative workup, some underlying propensity for thrombosis. And certainly if I see a patient who gets a thrombosis flying from San Francisco to Portland, you know, a couple hours, and that to me is a different, that's more worrisome that there's something going on than if they just flew in from uh, Auckland, New Zealand. So, so there, that makes me a little bit worried, uh, given the very short duration, something else is going on. Yeah. Well, great. Do you have any final comments or last remarks? On the no, well, I would say, again, I think teamwork's very important. I'd like to give a big shout out to Dr. Johnson, who's now a star resident in the Mayo Clinic Internal Medicine Program and future hematologist for, you know, doing the bulk of the work of writing this up, as well as, again, I mentioned uh, Tova Cole and Andrew Hamilton, who did a great job in informatics, and then my colleagues, Dr. Schatzel and Olson, who also helped out. So, you know, we believe in teamwork in Oregon, and this this was a team effort that I think made, took a morass of data to, and tried to make it understandable. Yeah, that was great. Well, thanks so much, Tom, for your time. We appreciate it, and thank you for the article, and I'm sure it, there are a few iterations, and you guys did a wonderful job. Of course, machines can't think as people do. A machine is different from a person. They think differently. Computers on your next backpacking trip or expedition? That sounds a bit ridiculous, right? Many of us want to get away from being tethered to the techie modern world. I would argue that such an idea to leave technology behind while in the wilderness may have been something your parents or grandparents espoused, but in the age of selfies and social media, it probably ain't so today. The last priority that I want to discuss today is the metaverse. Well, I brought in Chris Davis from the University of Colorado to help us figure out the role or maybe the invasiveness of technology in the wilderness. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Good. So what are you up to uh, in Colorado these days? Yeah, the, um, you know, I've been working as the medical director of virtual health for our health system here in Colorado for about, um, let's see, about six years now. It's obviously been an exciting uh, last 24 months in the virtual health world um, with massive adoption of telemedicine uh, secondary to the pandemic, and it's exciting times. I, I still have the passion, sort of as you alluded to, of, of bringing what can work in, uh, in the telemedicine space over into the remote and austere wilderness medicine space as well, and I'm excited to talk about that overlap. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was telling some folks, and we were just talking about the sabbatical that I took was more technologically driven, but I was still able to apply it to outdoor settings, wilderness settings. It seems like nowadays there's been people who are especially into the selfies, they're taking their smartphones, and unfortunately some people have died taking these selfies and whatnot. And, you know, I remember my first trip to Nepal. I was out there solo running on the Annapurna circuit back in the late 90s, passing through, you know, small villages, sipping tea, practicing Nepali with the locals. It was really fun. But at one point, I was so far on the trail, there was not a soul in sight. And it was me and me alone. I was running towards these magnificent mountains. And I was so inspired. I said, hey, you know, I want to play this music that would even inspire me more. I can't remember exactly what the music was, but it was music reminding me of grandiose mountains and it would motivate to help me to run with a backpack on at 10,000 feet since I was going solo. There were no porters or anything like that. I don't think so. I don't think so. So I pop a cassette 
in my cassette player. This is old school, sorry folks. Napster, the first audio streaming service, wouldn't come into existence until the next year. And CDs were a little bit unstable to play because of the shaking while running. And so no iPods existed, no smartphones existed at that time. So at any rate, I put my earphones on and I was good to go. The dopamine surge was amazing. I was running in the center of these 7,000 and 8,000 meter peaks along challenging and beautiful terrain. And this was indescribable. I even swore I would return things I never stole. And 10 minutes later, I ended up crossing an older gentleman coming the other way, probably an American who scolded me for listening to music while on this personal journey. Ah, you shouldn't be doing that. You just need to enjoy the nature. And although he couldn't hear what I was listening to, his disdain for technology was kind of evident. And I briefly thought to myself that uh, maybe he had a point. Then I decided to choose the dopamine over the opinion of this older gentleman. And yeah, I agree that there's a place and time for technology. And I still limit my use in the backcountry because nowadays it's so common, on the other hand, to go into the backcountry and you see a new generation wearing wearable technology, be it smartphones, Bluetooth connected earphones, smartwatches like what I have here and whatever. And there seems to be a complete reversal from that time over 20 years ago to what is happening now. And one could argue that technology might be distracting our society. Do you think, Chris, that technology is invading our wilderness experience? I, I think it's certainly possible that it can, right? And and really what we're, it feels like we're talking around this, this sort of this issue of style, right? And, and, uh, and that's something that, you know, that as, just as a community, we have to have conversations about, but like, no, to your point, right? You're listening to music on, on headphones, right? And I'm, I certainly grip my teeth when I'm out on a, on a, uh, maybe on a mountain bike ride somewhere and somebody's got their, you know, their, their Bluetooth speaker and it's blaring music to other people, right? So it, 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 but it's really difficult to sort of draw the line on where you stop. Um, but I, I guess my heuristic is, right, you, you draw the line when you're potentially affecting somebody else's experience. But, you know, this is America, right? And so this is, we, we you know, this is about personal choice. And I, I guess I'd take a step back and say, right, I mean, technology has been part of the wilderness experience and, and even the Alpine experience for, you know, a hundred years or more, right? I mean, and more recently, right, just ultralight clothing, ultralight gear, um, you know, GPS, uh, you know, all of those things have uh, made uh, navigating and experiencing the wilderness safer, perhaps more enjoyable. You know, again, that said, a lot of people are, are trying to escape something when they're, you know, and usually their normal lives when they're he heading to the wilderness, we got to allow space for that. The same time, right? I don't see a lot of people, uh, you know, sort of spinning their own yarn to make their own clothes or or making their own leather hobnail boots either, right? I mean, there's it, it's again, it gets messy fast. Yeah, right. It does. I guess it's a kind of a philosophy, and those philosophies can definitely be competing. But yeah, you're right. If you're interview interfering, I should say, in somebody else's experience, you know, that's definitely questionable, and you can definitely hear it in the urban areas. These guys put on their special music and their low vehicles. I think technology too is making the wilderness experience maybe a little bit more enjoyable, maybe a little more safe. And the article that you and your colleagues just published this June in the journal, the intersection of telemedicine and wilderness care past, present, future really came out, I think in a timely fashion, especially post pandemic. And firstly, 
Could you discuss how telemedicine works in a traditional medical environment? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's two swim lanes there. I mean, one, there are sort of four buckets or flavors of, of telemedicine. And they those are uh, what we would, most of us would think about as traditional telemedicine, which is you're on, you know, a video type platform with your doctor talking about something. And that's something we call live interactive video. Uh, the second is something we called asynchronous care. And that's where, again, you might be sending a secure text or a secure email that might or have an image attached to it, or maybe it's just a secure message uh, with an update. And the asynchronous part means you're not going to get a response right away. I mean, it might be five minutes or it might be five hours or five days. Uh, so that's that bucket. Probably one of the more exciting buckets is this idea of remote patient monitoring. That's the third bucket where, again, data is getting generated from the patient that's helping to paint a clinical picture for a provider somewhere else. And again, that's leveraging these technologies around wearable devices, which could be, again, your Fitbit or something even fancier, something truly, truly medical grade that's that's meant to you know, drive clinical care. The last is this idea of mHealth. Uh, and that's more, I guess, more broad and harder to define, but that's really, I mean, anything that's healthcare related that you can put on your smartphone could fall into that bucket. Again, pretty heterogeneous. But in all of these cases, all of these, these modalities require three things, right? You got to have some sort of device that's hardware. You got to have some sort of software that's sort of running the device and is the brains um, that's trans transmitting information. And then the network itself that gets information from one place to another. Well, there seems to be some commonalities between wilderness and austere medicine and telemedicine. And as you went through the history in the article, you delineated things quite well and the importance of that. And could you comment on the evolution of telemedicine over the past decade? Yeah, the uh, again, a lot of this stuff has been uh, around for for many, many decades, right? Uh, and some of it still sounds futuristic, but for again, for instance, remote patient monitoring, right? This was something that NASA developed in the 1960s uh, as part of the Apollo moon missions, right? I mean, they're, they're actually taking biometric sensors and transmitting um, vital signs from astronauts down to mission control, right? That fundamentally, not much has changed on how that works from a technical perspective, at least in, from a theoretical and technical perspective. What has changed, right, is that all the devices are cheaper, more accessible, right? You don't need mission control anymore. You can just buy some of this stuff, obviously, you know, on, on Amazon or from Apple or et cetera. And the other thing that has sort of evolved is one, and especially in the last couple of months, massive adoption, and certainly in the, the live interactive video space, and just sort of the, the familiarity of, again, of providers knowing how to use these technologies and knowing when to use them. Again, what I joke about with my colleagues in, in the virtual health world back at the University of Colorado is, is we used to have meeting after meeting in 2019, trying to figure out how to drive adoption of these incredible technologies, right? And all of that, all of that evaporated in the blink of an eye. Actually, in the University of Colorado, are you using your application more for rural health or even to consult among urban areas since you're probably working at, you know, a critical access center? It, it is. It, it's a big, big mix. I mean, so 
and the short answer is is yes. So let me give you a, a couple examples. You, you know that the University of Colorado Hospital, right, is our big regional tertiary care center. We talked earlier about technology improving potential, potentially uh, improving the experience. Telemedicine and technology is is really there to drive access. And especially again, how do we ex- export all of this incredible specialized care and get it beyond the walls of an academic center? And in, in many ways, we're, we're using again live interactive video to take those subspecialists and get them into those critical critical access clinics and or hospitals. So again, you don't have to drive you know in Colorado hundreds of miles to come and get your your post op check or to talk to your oncologist, or do all of that tertiary care stuff. So that's that. That's the rural and, and critical access angle. Our focus, though, is on this idea of using data and using data that's generated at the bedside in our own hospitals and bringing that into our telemedicine command hub and serving it up to what we would call virtualists, people who are specializing in virtual care, to act and to act when maybe the bedside isn't available, right? There maybe they're there in a palliative care meeting, maybe they're in the operating room. And what we see again in our in our quality space is when when there isn't someone there and you have a deteriorating patient, that delay in care leads to morbidity and mortality. And so that's why we use our telemedicine command hub to sort of amortize and back up that bedside care, not replace, but back up that bedside care to improve outcomes. Right. I'm sure there's some regulatory things that would apply to virtual telemedicine type of conference in our setting in the United States in a hospital setting. But there are also platforms that could be used for asynchronous consultations. I don't know if you heard of Tiger Text, but we use that Tiger Connect quite a lot. If a consultant wants a picture of an ECG or something like that, and we might use photos of patients. And aftermath of the Haiti earthquake, I went in 2010 with our disaster medicine team, we actually were able to just take photographs because the whole idea of virtual technology at that time really was very nascent. And so I would take a picture of a patient and I tried my best to de-identify that patient, not take a picture of anything like the face or anything like that. And it seemed to work pretty good, but now we have HIPAA in the United States, at least, and some other countries have similar rules such as HIPAA. Well, are you aware of any low budget solutions to help somebody in the wilderness, say a wilderness first responder, get a consult to a wilderness medicine expert without HIPAA concerns? Or are we going to be pretty much needing to utilize software that is HIPAA compliant? What do you think about that? Yeah, it's it one sort of the, the, the regulatory hurdles in the telemedicine space are very real. They're very confusing and very frustrating. But again, from a big picture perspective, I think, again, as a nation, we're heading, albeit slowly, in the right direction. And, and again, you know, one of the, the silver linings in the public health emergency related to the pandemic was just this realization that these rules don't work in a pandemic setting. And right, this relaxation around cross-state licensure and letting people just, just treat patients. And to your point uh, about HIPAA, relaxation around HIPAA enforcement. The downside is like the public health emergency is, you know, expiring, which again, this is, this is a good thing overall, but a lot of that sort of relaxation around enforcement and these regulatory statutes is going to, it has the potential to sort of bite people if they're not careful. You're asking specifically about sort of a low budget means 
to, you know, especially for sort of wilderness first responders. And, and there isn't, uh, I, I mentioned the article, I, I believe again, like having such a platform that's dedicated to the wilderness space would be like an open source platform would be incredible. That doesn't exist. That said, right, there's so many people who just with this, the rapid adoption of working from home do have access to HIPAA compliant, often have access, I should say, to HIPAA compliant platforms like Zoom like Microsoft Outlook and Teams. All of these things are, are, you know, again, does everyone have access? No, but a lot of people would. And having just a little bit of awareness around the pitfalls can keep you out of trouble. And a lot of this is, again, we want to be above board, but the, is the, the risk is relatively low. That said, practicing medicine across, across state lines without a license. I mean, if you if a bad outcome happens and and you're liable for that, then, I mean, then your medical malpractice wouldn't actually even cover you. You're, that's unlicensed care. And that's a big, big deal. So let's discuss drones for a minute. I'm going a little bit off here, but drones are very interesting. Have you seen actual cases in Colorado where you're using drones? I mean, we have actually used drones here in New Mexico for search and rescue. It's very new, of course. And would there be any problem with HIPAA? Do you, as far as you know, you may not know this answer to this question, but will drones be, how should I say, would they cause interference in privacy issues? Because a lot of people don't really like drones. They buzz, they're noisy. People think that Martians are spying on them. And, you know, I understand because I actually operate drones. So I understand these arguments on both ways. What, what's your opinion on drones and the use of drones in telemedicine? Well, from a big picture perspective, I think they're going to be transformative, uh, and especially in, 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 again, remote settings, both in the U.S. and internationally. I, I haven't heard of any concerns around, again, let's say you're getting a, back to this idea of live interactive video, one of the buckets, and you're getting a video feed from your drone that you're using to do a, a hasty search or even triage uh, a, a potential victim. I, I think that's so, so far down the line of enforcement that, I mean, it's just, is it zero? No, but it's just vanishingly small. But it gets back to the, to your point, it gets back to this notion around style and affecting other people's experience in the wilderness. And, and to your point, you're right. I mean, let's say you're in a, in a wilderness setting. That's actually something I have actually not looked into, which is, could you even use a drone in a wilderness setting for a rescue, not not maybe at your state park, but truly in a wilderness setting. My guess is that the statue would say no, but we're just knocking on the door of what is possible in leveraging drones in healthcare. There hasn't been an opportunity to have that kind of national conversation again with regulators about what that actually means. And you also discuss the remote patient monitoring devices, the wearable sensors, and that's very fascinating. And I don't know if you are using in Colorado any of these sensors to patients where you could monitor them and then say, oh, you know, Mr. Jones, you're having a bout of atrial fibrillation. Why don't you come in? I don't know. But are you aware of expedition teams or other groups using these sensors to guide athletes, which is fascinating, or wilderness participants in whatever activity to augment their performance? Yeah, it's, it, it's, that's such an interesting space. And, and to answer your first question, we are, we're, we're sending patients home with wearable devices. And, and again, much of this was just driven by the fact that our hospitals were full 
full of COVID patients, and we could give patients a wearable device that streams heart rates, respiratory rate, pulse ox, et cetera, and, and watch them from the home and get continuous vital sign data, which was incredibly powerful. From what I have heard, again, a lot of these expedition groups are potentially using things like Fitbits or Aura devices uh, to facilitate training before going international, but I haven't heard of any company that is saying, hey, it's summit day and your your wearable device is saying you're not rested enough for this. We're a, a bit away from that, right? It's it's that's getting driven by logistics, weather window, all of those sorts of things. But I think we're probably going to get there, and where it it is going to potentially um, say, hey, you're ready to go up to Camp Four if we're you know we're we're in sort of an Everest scenario or something like that, or or it is this is a good day for summit day for you. What we don't have yet is the actual algorithms to leverage the data that is getting generated by these wearable devices. That's sort of the, the big missing piece and unrealized, I guess, holy grail around remote patient monitoring is we've got some pretty cool, again, predictive algorithms that are relevant in inpatient medicine, but not necessarily for wilderness or exercise performance, those sorts of things. I don't like talking like this but I am tired of being Ringo when I know I was John. Everybody loves Ringo. And I'm tired of being patronized by you. You think John became John by winning a raffle was? You think he tricked somebody or hit George Harrison over the head? He was John because he was John. He was John because he wrote Ticket to Ride. There's going to be a whole new field possibly of research to figure out how to use these devices for some of these other applications such as athletic performance. You're able to truncate some of these divergent specialties. So we have telemedicine and then you use teleradiology, for instance, and now we just call it radiology. What I'm tending to think about with regard to wilderness medicine or operational medicine and telemedicine is something called teleops. So we talked a little bit about wearable devices as the future. Do you see any other directions where telemedicine and wilderness medicine is going into the future? I do think this sort of arc or of taxonomy is sort of fascinating again in, in the, the teleradiology and now just being radiology is, is, is a, just a great example around that. I think, again, you mentioned teleops and I think that's just going to become ops. Uh, and, and that's the, that's the phenomenon and the trend that, that we're heading towards where most search and rescue groups, at least in the U S are probably going to have a drone in the future. I mean, that, that's, that's sort of where we're heading and, and potentially most um, maybe in your part of your hasty team, you know, go bag is going to be a wearable device that you have in the top of your backpack that you slap on the patient as soon as you're there and start to generate vital sign data that's beaming back to med control. Like that's not that far away, but to your point, you're right. We're probably going to call that teleops for five or 10 years, and then it's just going to be standard and usual care. Do you have any other last comments that you might want to make? Well, I, I again, I, I'm so passionate about this intersection, again, between telemedicine and wilderness medicine. But I mean, back to this idea of that you brought up to, to begin with it, which is having an, a good and respectful conversation around, you know, how to even ethically manage all of this data that may come from these wearable devices and, and how do we actually still respect autonomy in these environments and again, not potentially affecting other people. Those are conversations that, that need to happen. 
and 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 I look forward to hearing about. Are you a little personal question? Are you using screens or for the listeners, you can't see me, but I'm putting on a Microsoft HoloLens. Are you guys using this as opposed to being stuck to a computer or a, uh, some sort of a, I don't know, desk? We, we are, we are right now in our telemedicine command hubs, we are stuck to either a six monitor or three monitor bay. I um, would love to see that kind of AR platform where you could flip between, use those to, to do your chart reviews. That would be absolutely incredible. <laughs> it's pretty fun. <laughs> it's been really fun. It's been a little challenging though. You know, I've been learning computer code, which has really been wonderful for just expanding knowledge base. There's definitely some kinks to work out. And a lot of this stuff, be it telemedicine or AR, VR, you really can't do without a dedicated team because one or two individuals alone cannot develop this uh, stuff. So it really takes a team, I think, to develop telemedicine. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Well, well, thanks for your time, Chris. Uh, It's really an important article. And I refer the listeners to read this article. There's some really great information in there. There's some things that we didn't cover too much because that's going to depend on locales such as international telemedicine, working in Nepal, for instance, you mentioned that in the article. And I know Nepal is very sticky with some of their rules. Chris, and thank you for your team and your team rather for just publishing this. This is really useful stuff. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. This is a production of Elsevier 2022. Be sure to fill out the CME questions, be safe, be educated, and get outside. Contact us for further questions. And until next time.